welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that lovely intro, and you can find him and his amazing wife at NativeStorytellers.com. They are Native Storytellers, obviously, and uh, they have an amazing amount of material and, and information on their website, so please check it out. It is rather amazing. Mark has made, um, made magic happen this week. And he has Jason Jarrell back with us. He is, uh, Jason is amazing. His, his book, uh, The Giants, um, about, about Native Americans here in this country is probably the best documented and most interesting book I have read in a very, very long time. Highly recommend it to everybody. And he has new material that he's going to be sharing with us as well as expanding upon own, uh, old. And uh, Mark is a good friend of his, so the two of them are going to enlighten us and give us a cornucopia of material to take into the holiday season. So I'm going to bring Mark on. Hi, Mark. How's it going tonight? I'm fine. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing very well. I'm excited about tonight's show. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a good one. Um you know, this is uh, we have all kinds of information to cover from the archaic to Hopewell time period, and maybe even the Mississippian. Or it's, it's going to be a cornucopia of everything. <laughs> I think that's what a cornucopia is. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a good one. But you know, but you know. Uh, a little bit of stuff to go over, you know, this, um, but I'm glad the uh, three-legged donkey uh, delivered Jason Sarah's mail uh, yesterday before the freezing rain ar- arrives, and because uh, that's going to fit in with some of our dis- uh, discussion uh, this evening, and you know, uh, you and I were talking. Last night at 12.01, <laughs> and 
you did not say those three words not not you know, not those three words but uh you know the more familiar you are fired <laughs> but that all tough words <laughs> yeah so so the uh the jinx is over and you know we're here for the uh, I'm, I'm here for the third part of our quadrilogy on prehistoric <laughs> shows uh, but you know, I think we we can attribute the uh, far more pleasant discussion last night to uh, you being better educated and far more enlightened. So, but and, I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I I won't segue into other things there. But um, you know, but. Yeah, uh, you and I really enjoy studying ancient history mm-hmm. and not all of the really neat stuff is overseas. Uh, America has a lot of uh, structures and customs that rival Stonehenge and the pyramids. Um, and we're just... Uh, Absolutely. Di- yeah, discovering and rediscovering yeah. some of these like uh, fascinating um, mortuary practices um, and uh, and other mysteries. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know, Jason is here to return to Nightlight to help us make sense of uh, all this. You know, of course, we'll be discussing uh, his book uh, that he co-authored with his lovely wife, Sarah Farmer, and their book is entitled Age, or the, the Ages of the Giants. And their yeah, it's works a great can also book. Be, oh, yeah, it, it, it really is. And uh, their works can also be found in Ancient American Magazine. Just give Wayne a call. He needs to do some cardio, carrying all these uh, orders down to the post office. But, uh, you know, we're going to ha- uh, you know, be covering a lot of I- information tonight. Um, let's see, I, you know, we, we already had uh, one caller, uh, uh, Amanda, and her birthday mister uh, just leave a message, and they want to know, uh, if Sarah has gotten the billboard sign put up in Dunbar so that they can see it on their way to Pies and Pints. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's not the whole show, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm waiting... I, I, I'm trying to goad uh, Sarah into jo- joining us. Is, is she? Um, um, Jason's not uh, listening. Jason's Jason. Like, his mic is open. Yeah. Well, uh, she's not joining us tonight, uh, unfortunately. Oh. So you'll just you'll just have to make do with me. I don't know how much enlightenment I can bring, but I am kind of a scholar. So hopefully we can illuminate some interesting subjects together. Okay, yeah. 
Uh, Jason, uh, you, know, you you brought so much uh, attention to West Virginia's rich prehistory. Uh, uh, how how uh, did the uh, local historians uh, r- respond to your ancient aliens appearance? Well, first of all, um, when I agreed to do Ancient Aliens, I had a two-hour-long conversation with the producers of the show, Mm -hmm. and I explained to them that I do not believe in extraterrestrial contact. And the reason (laughs) that I would do the show in spite of that uh, is there is certain evidence of certain discoveries here in the mounds in Charleston, West Virginia, where I live, that I wanted the whole world to be able to see. And they agreed to put the evidence on screen, and so I agreed to be interviewed by them. Now, what's very interesting about the situation is that the producers at that time were actually looking for something that was low on sensationalism. They wanted to speak with an expert on the Adena Mound Builders who was willing to talk about the very large skeletons found in some of the mounds, Uh And I I believe they were, for the most part, very respectful of those pretenses with the segment as it appeared on the show. It was very informative, and uh, Uh they actually showed their viewers pages from a copy that we own of the manuscript and field diary of the Smithsonian agent who, in 1883 and 1884, removed multiple skeletons between 7 feet tall and 7 feet 6 inches in height from the burial mounds here in Charleston, West Virginia. But the really interesting thing surrounding this whole episode, which you had a hand in organizing, I might mention, Mark, um, (laughs) this caper... yeah, don't, don't 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 let people know I'm competent. Uh, Bar- Barbara said, "Yeah, I, 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 I'm just like to sit, sit in the corner and be uh, cute and fluffy and just like radio eye candy." Well, I mean, the thing is, let me tell anyone hearing this: Mark Eddy is a force <laughs> of nature. There, there are things that happen when this guy's around. Okay, uh, <laughs> I'm in trouble so now. We. We essentially uh, set up to shoot on a certain day, and the local press found out that the show was coming to Charleston. They didn't know anything about it, why they were coming, what their interest was in the mounds, nothing. And what happened was they spoke with several archaeologists who then took it upon themselves to accuse the program and the guests again, without knowing anything about the content, they accused everyone involved of being some some type of cosmic racist who claimed the Indians couldn't have built the mounds without the help of extraterrestrials. So <clears throat> we experienced firsthand um, how the media and academia partner to sort of play whack-a-mole with the threat of any viewpoint which which goes against whatever it is that they're that they're living in. Okay, is you know, we you know, we the 
know, what do you say? The, the, the same mindset uh, seems to be continuing, what, like three years later with, um, you know, just. Uh, you know, de- debunking of you know what you do at a state museum. What mm-hmm. uh, what 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 did you think of the the information d- from the Grave Creek Mound Museum in e- Wheeling? Is it uh, Moundsville? Mm-hmm. Like well, there is. You know, like they, they say, there is no archaeological evidence for a race of giant humans. <clears throat> well, if we're going to address this, there's a lot to unpack. So I hope you've got a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah, about we, a, uh, an hour and fifty hours. minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. Okay, so I just want everyone to understand uh, who I am and what I do before I talk about uh, the controversial displays that are going up in our taxpayer-funded museums. Um, Myself, I'm what you would call an avocational archaeologist. I study archaeology because I love it and because I love ancient cultures and the indigenous people of North America. And one of the benefits of, of not being a, a university-funded archaeologist is you're free to review archaeological reports and archaeological discoveries from throughout our country's history and talk about anything that you find interesting in those reports, including things which the establishment chooses to conveniently ignore. And one of the subjects which we found is valid is the discovery of human beings of extraordinary size, height, and build that have been found in many prehistoric tombs throughout the country. Now, with regards to the types of displays that that Grave Creek Mound Museum has put up where we have the Cardiff Giant, Uh, and several known hoaxes and frauds mentioned, really has nothing to do with what was actually found in the mounds. Any time that you see these classic stories or old newspaper stories that mention people 15 and 20 feet tall being found in ancient tombs, those stories were jokes, exaggerations, or frauds. The reality is that what has been found in the burial mounds of the Ohio River Valley, Adena, and Hopewell cultures, what has been found from the earliest days of settlement in this region are the remains of people who range between seven and eight and a half feet tall with very thick bones, very powerful jaws, Uh, and clear markings on the bones for powerful muscular attachments. 
these remains have been found, measured, and photographed, not just by the Smithsonian in the 1880s, but by professional archaeologists all the way up to the 1980s in tombs of the Adena and Hopewell cultures, not just in the Ohio River Valley, but also in New York State, Delaware, Maryland, Vermont, southern Canada, and southeastern Florida. There are far too many of these remains found in a culture that spanned essentially around 800 years for us to just say that they were the occasionally tall members of a population. So that's the reality versus the hoax. And what we're seeing happen is obvious hoaxes are being used as examples of what people like myself are talking about when that's a completely invalid and fraudulent comparison to make. Um, it's a little bit troubling to... See, see, you know the, the you know this uh, you know cu- couple uh, di- displays where uh, you know they're just kind of you know trying to debunk you know, giantology when uh, <clears throat> the the crescent mound was excavated uh well like in nineteen sixty and it, it was located just seven miles south of this museum. Uh, mm. uh can can you explain the the importance of the Crescent Mounds and Certainly. Certainly uh, yeah, like the, yeah, how how this just it, it does the the findings don't match what what is on display mm-hmm. at the museum. So the Crescent Mound was excavated by an archaeologist from the Carnegie Museum named Don Dragoo. And uh, Dragoo's excavation and study of the Crescent Mound are the centerpiece of an excellent book published in 1963 called Mounds for the Dead by Don Dragoo. And the Crescent Mound is a very famous Adena mound. Almost every archaeologist knows about this mound and has to study it because it was Dragoo's research at Crescent Mound which revealed the information that gave us the chronology of the entire Adena culture. In other words, the stratified layers of the mound had artifacts which could be used to diagnose any of the phases that this culture went through through time. And for archaeo-junkies like myself, that's very interesting information. Um, And uh, while excavating the Crescent Mound, Don Dragoo uncovered the remains of a very large individual in Burial 54 uh, at the mound, which was a skeleton that was just over seven feet long, and Dragoo actually was inspired by this discovery to do a review of Adena anthropology, just as several anthropologists had done 
in the preceding decades. And so studying the surviving bones on catalog of the Adena people and comparing those bones uh, with the bones that he found in the Crescent Mound, uh, Don Dragoo uh, was inspired to write a section of his book called The Physical Anthropology of Adena, which essentially acknowledges the consistent discovery of individuals of some extraordinary stature in the mounds of the culture. And there are several discoveries cited in that part of the book. So the the mound is significant for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, anyone who studies this culture knows about this mound, and so they know about Dragu's statements concerning uh, large individuals among the Adena people. <laughs> that means that virtually every expert on this culture who denies that large bones were ever found fully knows better. But the other significant thing in relation to Grave Creek Mound is that its vicinity to Grave Creek and the Grave Creek Mound tells us that the same tribes of Adena people likely constructed both mounds. And it's it's very ironic in a lot of ways that a mound so close to Grave Creek <laughs> yielded the evidence of precisely what the museum is, is working hard to deny today. But if you look, you mentioned giantology a minute ago. Mm-hmm. So if we think of giantology as a field of literature, documentaries, and and other media that is themed upon the discovery of giants in prehistoric graves, which is what it is, it's if you look at the last 20 years of giantology, we've been inundated with books which basically link these large remains with various sensational concepts, you know, such as the Nephilim aliens or some unknown race of humanity. So we shouldn't be surprised when the first encounter between academics and giantologists in modern times produces a situation like this. Uh, there there are no two diametrically opposed fields with more distinction than any form of academic study and what we call giantology. You know, the the issue at hand is, of all the people who who write about the giants, there are actually very few of them probably who could actually even identify a piece of pottery or a spear point fabricated by any of the cultures that buried the large skeletons in their tombs. So there's growth that needs to happen on both sides. You know, there's a, a knee-jerk reaction from the establishment, and um, that's being agitated by connecting the discovery of these remains <clears throat> with very sensational ideas for which there's very little support. Okay, I, I, I don't need to uh, go to college and get a four-year degree in anthropology to just look at page 50, and there is 
a photo of Burial 54. Uh-huh. It's it's uh, clearly defined right there. There's photographic evidence of a giant that came out or was published in 1963. That, that's mm-hmm. uh, pretty much case closed. Well, the case is closed. That's the point, you see. When we read any kind of academic literature, even if it's genetic anthropology, you'll find that the experts in any scientific field to back up any of the theories or conclusions they reach, they cite numerous other experts who have documented the same experiments and effects. And I'm not sure how many archaeologists and anthropologists that we found going back to the 1800s who acknowledged these large remains and measured them for our book, Ages of the Giants. But I know that each chapter ended up having to have its own reference section. Uh, the The remains are already on record, as you say. The, the proof is already there. What we have here is an anthropological anomaly that no one wants to deal with. And because no one wants to deal with it, it's been picked up upon by a lot of different sources for different reasons that that make the academics uncomfortable. And so there's a perfect tension that's generated by this issue. And, you know, this is uh, what the Crescent Mound is um, considered more of an early Adena uh, mound um, than, you know, when Colonel Norris was in Dunbar and you can go, was it like 18th Street or, you know, know, maybe when Sarah gets the pink pink Speedo billboard up, she can have, like, directions of where, you know, the Smith Mound was located. And there were three three giants in just that one mound. Uh, can, Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of the Smith Mound, and that was what uh, considered a a, a a late Adena mound, and you know, so there's a you know, several hundred years of a giant presence in the greater Ohio River Valley. Well, yes, there must be, there must be, and and this is why the Charleston Mound Group that you're referring to. Uh, consisted of 50 burial mounds and between 8 and 10 sacred earthworks that were probably aligned to the sun and the moon. And this is the largest single Adena mound site in the entire Ohio River Valley that we know of. The Charleston mounds date back to around 200 B.C., and they were during the later phase of the Adena culture. And during this phase, what had happened was multiple communities and villages, instead of building their own burial mounds, they had started to assemble together at one predetermined time and place and to bury all of their dead together in large burial mounds centers, as we see at Charleston. So what that tells us 
is that the Charleston Mound Group gives us a good perspective on a larger expanse of the Adena world in terms of what their people were like. In fact, this was probably used by Adena people who lived throughout the entire Kanawha River Valley. Uh, and they were bringing their dead here and burying them in the same mounds as the dead of other communities as a way of symbolically adopting a common ancestry uh, in the world of the dead. This was a, a profound way to ensure economic ties and stability because adopting the dead ancestors of another person's family made you the same family. So the cult of the dead was at the center of this sort of intercommunal alliance. And at Charleston, Colonel Norris of the Smithsonian Institution between 1883 and 1884 unearthed numerous skeletons. Uh, some are simply called, in his notes, gigantic or massive. When measurements were possible, he measured skeletons between 7 and 7 feet 6 inches in height. Uh, he recovered numerous skeletons of this size from the Charleston Mound Group. And as you said, at least <clears throat> three of the large individuals came from one mound, which was the Great Smith Mound. It was on the Smith Farm in what is now Dunbar, West Virginia. So with all of this information that we've gone over in mind, what this tells us is that, is that the large Adena people, the people that are known in the popular lingo today as the ancient giants, they were living among many Adena communities spread out throughout the Canal Valley. Uh, they were a consistent aspect of Adena populations because as they died off in different areas, their remains were being transported to Charleston from different communities for burial at this particular mound group. So this was a, a widespread phenomenon among this population base. Okay, it, and it, you have, like, one of my favorite aspects of the Smith Mound is it is, what, one of three mounds that had <clears throat> basically a log cabin built inside of it and the, the uh, primary burial was uh, inside this log, ca log cabin. Mm -hmm. Well, there are several mounds at Charleston which, can, which covered wooden tomb structures, and during this particular phase of this culture, the tombs of the dead that we find in the mounds, uh, they are elaborate log tombs, and sometimes they make what appear to be small cabins in which uh, sometimes just one burial, but other times multiple burials are placed. Uh, at the Smith Mound, this was a log tomb with a sloping bark roof, and even a, a ridge support. And the log tomb contained 
six burials. And one of those burials was a large skeleton, seven feet, six inches tall, that had been wrapped in leather and bark and encased in clay. That's interesting to take the practice of encasing the dead in clay in Adena because that is a widespread tendency. We see a lot of the, the Adena mounds actually had baked clay floors, which were probably ritual areas before the mound was built over top of it. The reason for the for the popularity of clay probably has something to do with the ancient Native American mythology of the first sacred earth taken from beneath the primordial ocean that was used to create the earth island that we all live on. And when it comes to the log cabins built into the Adena tombs, and of course they weren't they weren't literal log cabins, they were just cabin-like sometimes in form. When it comes to the larger log tombs, we could be seeing an ancient representation of what's known as a medicine lodge or a spirit house in historic Native American traditions. Because if there's one thing that's becoming more and more apparent as the years go on, it's that these cultures uh, can be interpreted through the lens of Native American traditions because they maintain the same cosmology here for tens of thousands of years unchanged. And we know a lot about that today. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was an interesting point what you were saying about the, the uh, use of clay and you know, if we at the Smith Mound, and uh, you know, if we look at you know the the uh, burial 54 from the Crescent Mound, uh, what that might have been two or three hundred years earlier, it, it, it's actually uh, it, it, I always say it, it, it wasn't as uh, a flamboyant type of uh, burial. It was more of like a, a sim, simple, simplistic type mm-hmm. burial. So you know, right. you can see like you know how some of the rituals uh, changed over a few hundred years and you know varied uh, you know the two hundred miles or so between the two uh, mound locations. You know that's an interesting point you brought up. Well, the the fact is, diversity is the key to understanding these cultures. Uh, there's very little that's repeated time and again with the, the burial practices, but those few things which are provide provide us with a real, a tantalizing glimpse into the belief systems of the mound builders. You know, one of the, the the mythologies that I've been working really hard to try to dispel lately is this idea that the ancient giants are unknowable to us, that these cultures are completely concealed from our knowledge, and so we have to speculate great narratives of history to try to explain the mound builders and the giants. Well, this simply isn't true because, as you know, the Adena and Hopewell cultures are two of the most widely studied ancient groups 
in the world. There are thousands and thousands of pages of, of breakthrough research published on these cultures every year. Uh, you can barely keep up with it. And so one of the things that, that I've tried to do and that Sarah tries to do as well is to really use this as a, a type of a, a jumping-on point to teach people about these ancient cultures because they're extraordinary. Uh, yeah, many no. years ago, uh, I started my investigations into the ancient world by learning the archaeology of Europe and the Middle East. And then when I began studying the archaeology of North America, I realized that North America was unlike anything else in the ancient world. The history that we see here defies standard routines of human behavior that we see replicated throughout the rest of the world. Uh, North America really is the great mystery when it comes to archaeology. And, and, you know, one of the points of the museum display that Oh, I don't know. It just maybe creates more confusion. I, 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 I really am not sure about the statement, but you know, they also say like you know, there's no archaeological evidence for a race of giant humans. Uh, do Do you think that these, you know? The three giants in the Smith Mound or the Crescent Mound, or you know, we can get into you know the Dover Mounds. Uh, you know, do, do you think those examples are uh, you know just unusually tall people? Do you think uh, you know, like this is just? You know, the, the characteristic of you know, this, uh, like race or you know, species of people, like are, you know, are, are, were, were the giants different people? Or are we just talking, or sh- should we just see them as um, just you know, tall people, just like you know, we have you know, some tall basketball players today, or we have uh, you know, uh, you know, a little people today. I, I mean, you know. We have the same thing going on in today's world, but you know, do, do you think that there is a, 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 like a separate race of giants? There is no separate race of giants in ancient okay. America. There is no separate race of giants. There was no Canaanite invasion uh, that installed giant overlords ruling the Native American people that were later destroyed in a revolution as some of the popular narratives are saying today. Uh, the the giants were in the ancestry of all Native Americans. The giants cannot be genetically linked to any one specific tribe or linguistic group. In the eastern woodlands, the ancestors of at least five different major linguistic groups had the giants among them. The giants were a product of the Native American gene pool as it had been since at least 
15,000 years ago when the first people came into this part of the world. And in order to determine the true significance of why these types of people exist among the Native American people uh, would require us to peer further into the past uh, and look closer at genetic anthropology than we've been willing to do up to this point. Whatever the answer to this mystery is, it's going to be found in anthropology somewhere. And the fact is, people talk about a quest for unusual DNA today. We have all these strange remains from around the world that are being passed through DNA labs. Well, even with a cursory knowledge of genetic anthropology, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you now, we don't even know what most of the stuff in our DNA that we already know about is for. I mean, the DNA is still a major mystery to us, and yet we think that we can go and find you know, something unusual that's out there waiting to be found. Well, humans are already a great mystery. There's much that we don't know about human history, uh, human origins, there's so much that we don't know already that the answer to some of these questions could just be waiting to be found. And the, the issue is that uh, no one's cracked it yet. But in terms of who were they, our first book, Ages of the Giants, was written to document the hard archaeological evidence that backs up this story. And our next book is going to answer several of the questions that people have been asking us since the first book came out. And one of those questions is, uh, who were they and who are their descendants today? And the information that we've collected, although I can't say much about it right now, uh, the information that we've collected I believe is going to shed more light on that subject than many people have anticipated. Uh, so with that said, no, they're not a separate race or a separate species. For whatever reason, they seem to have been born into the basic population. And we know also that they were not guaranteed some type of elite status on the virtue of their unique descent because we see tombs which contain the large remains uh, when the individual is buried with no artifacts whatsoever, sometimes face down. And then on the other hand, we have tombs where uh, a large individual uh, is buried with many prestigious artifacts, smoking pipes, exotic materials such as copper and mica, but the fact is that there were just as many and, in fact, more people who seem to have had authority who were of average stature uh, than there were people who were drawn from the genetic base of the tall ones. Yeah, that, that, that's really fascinating because um, I, 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 I didn't know. I'm, it, it's just... I don't. I just don't don't know. Um, but you know, if, 
you know, people can read, you know, D- Dr. Webb's The Dover Mound, and, mm-hmm. you know, he, he does say, oh, you know, the you know, people buried at the Dover Mounds are, are, are not are not all, or there's only one giant, but, uh, you know, most of the other people buried at the Dover Mound are a little uh, taller than the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, it, just, it, it does seem like there were some... Uh, a little bit like, uh, say, what, closer like five ten, you know, a little closer to six feet tall than like five six. And you know, you just kind of wonder about you know these uh, you know, uh, issues uh, with height. It is just a fascinating. Uh, topic and then you know, uh, you know the the story you know the s- similar stories have continued uh, to uh, be passed on in folklore and it is the the display at the museum that kind of puts down folklore but it, it, it's you know, ba- backing up w- what. You know, the archaeologists have found. So it, it's just kind of bewildering for you know, just the average person to under, un, understand this material. Well, that's a bias of American archaeology, actually. The archaeologists in the northeastern woodlands here uh, in, in the United States have a historic bias against Native American traditions and folklore and trying to use them in actual archaeological discoveries and digs. And that's something that uh, we've we've only recently started to break out of, where we see people like Cheryl Clausen and Christopher Carr and Will Romaine who are applying Native American traditions to interpreting these cultures. Uh, But that's still some, that's new ground in American archaeology today for that to become a standard. Whereas if you cross the border into Canada, uh, you'll find that burial mounds of the Adena culture that are 3,000 years old have actually been located because their descendants in the same area passed on the tradition that it was a burial mound for three millennia, and then they contact the archaeologists. So there's a completely different relationship between archaeologists, not just between countries, but different states and the Native Americans. And I think that really affects how much we trust the lore or how much uh, individual academics trust in the lore. But uh, the Native American cosmology and, and folklore really deserves a place in world mythology that I believe... Uh, I believe that it's denied the status that it fully deserves because the narrative traditions that were recorded from the Native American elders after European contact, they describe cosmologies and mythologies that are just as fascinating and incredible as anything else from the ancient world. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> now that you, you brought up you know, these cosmology stories uh, you, know, you do have 
really interesting article in Ancient American uh, edition 120 where you talk about these, uh, like the uh, where, where mounds are located near uh, marshes. Yeah, you get like a, uh, you know, you say like a, a floating island imagery. Well, okay, you know, then go back to uh, Indian Knoll when you know, the uh, Green River would flood and you know the burial mound would uh, look like an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, and so, so yeah, I just uh, and but but you uh, work in these marshes and the cosmology. Uh, you know, uh, let's get into what what you found about the positioning of the mounds. <laughs> well, to begin with, it's important. To, to view North American history this way for tens of thousands of years the Native American people and their ancestors held the same cosmological model the same way of seeing the universe and this model there are numerous variations of it but I'll just give you the basics in this model the cosmos consists of three realms. Now, there's a realm above us. We'll just call that the above realm, and it's inhabited by powerful beings known as thunderbirds. We, ourselves as humans, animals, plants, the natural world as we call it, represent the second realm beneath the sky realm, and our world is usually imagined as a flat disk or island floating in a primordial expanse of ocean water. Now, beneath our world, there's a watery underworld known uh, as the, the below realm or other realm. And here in the underworld, there's a race of creatures who usually are depicted as serpent-like, and they have a master that is over them, a great and powerful spiritual being called the Great Horned Serpent or the Underwater Panther. And there are several different permutations of how this being is portrayed on artifacts, rock art, paintings, and other types of expression. But essentially... Most forms of this being in the Native American lore are either a gigantic serpent with horns or a serpentine dragon-like being with a body very similar to a feline, sometimes with a long tail covered in copper or shell. Now, the beings in the above realm, the thunderers, and the beings from the below realm led by the great horned serpent, are in constant warfare. And their war transpires in our world, and humans make alliances with either or both of these forces. This cosmology may be as old as humanity itself, because we're finding echoes of it 
in the Upper Paleolithic period today. Now, uniting the three realms was a pillar or mountain. It's usually known as an axis mundi. And this axis mundi is what was intended by the construction of conical burial mounds. They were artificial portals connecting the three realms. And since one of those realms is represented by water, and since the earth disk is surrounded by water, the ancients took to building their sacred shrines and burial grounds along waterways or near lakes because waterways and lakes and streams and natural springs were believed to lead straight into the watery underworld because all the realms were connected and they interrelated with each other. And a a lot of that article in edition 120 focuses on uh, the Liverpool site in kind of like uh, central Illinois and uh, like you know the yeah just really in yeah uh, you know a lot of these areas where there are Mounds, yeah, it's you know fairly common to have uh, creeks uh, emptying into a major river, and you know water just kind of uh, you know pools up around the you know creates a little estuary. Um, so it and you know you do find you know mounds in those areas pretty well, common so yeah so it, it's like the, the this cosmology seems like it, it would be a pattern throughout a pretty expansive part of the eastern united states well it was and frequently there are there have been mounds in illinois and minnesota constructed by Hopewell-related people that were built deliberately in floodplains because the the submergence of the mound underwater and then its re-emergence later uh, represented the submergence and rebirth of the world, of the island, uh, as it was pulled from the primordial sea. Uh, so it's the sky's the limit with how much uh, of an influence the presence of water played on the construction of burial mounds and earthworks for these people. Water was very important because every waterway was viewed as seeing it as, as being a habitation for the great horned serpent. Even in historic times, the Indians of the Northeast were still sacrificing tobacco before taking any water voyage in this part of the country because they believed that the great serpents could cause drownings and canoe accidents. Uh, So this is a very uh, prevalent cosmology. We find it in the traditions of uh, the Pawnee, 
We find it among the Iroquois, the Sioux, the Algonquians, and there's a remarkable similarity in the traditions of all these people concerning these spirit beings like the Thunderbirds or the Great Serpents and and the tiered cosmos that they lived in. But there's also an important distinction I would like to make about this belief system. I've used terms such as spirits or spirit beings to describe the Thunderbirds and the Great Horned Serpents, and so have many ethnographers and researchers. But I just want people to understand that the Western understanding for spirit being or supernatural does not apply to the Native American cosmology in any way, shape, or form. Uh, In this belief system, the Thunderers and the Great Horned Serpents and the worlds in which they live are simply extensions of our world. They are literally true. They're not figurative, but literal. Jason? Mm-hmm. It's Barbara. Yeah. I have a question. Um, <clears throat> you're talking about a horned serpent, and it just occurred to me that the Mayan people actually did come from this part of the country, and they had, of course, a feathered serpent also. Is there any connection um, or or overplay? They they do kind of hit the same time frame, kind of. All of the cosmologies and traditions of this entire part of the world are linked because all of these people uh, came from the same ancestral base. And I know that there are new DNA studies that have been published that suggest that there were several waves of colonists into North America uh, more than 10,000 years ago. Uh, But even with that, uh, that still wouldn't change the the circulation of the mythologies. And there are actually anthropologists that have published studies that reference uh, Quetzalcoatl and uh, some of the the serpent beings we see south of the border uh, in the iconography there and compare it to the the concept of the great serpent here in the eastern woodlands, yes, uh, in my opinion. I, I, wonder, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wonder how much of this comes from genetic memory with the overflow rather than actually even a connection of it. You know, could it, could it be that <clears throat> that deeply into the DNA? Well, the archetypes of the un- unconscious are a powerful thing, so certainly... Uh, any any interpretation is possible when we're talking about ancient cultures and people. The only difference is that some are more likely. But when it comes to considering whether or not uh, the, the pervasiveness of this particular myth, uh, when it comes to that, uh, I think it could be cultural transmission or genetic memory. Uh, in fact, if we look around the entire world, we see these motifs. For instance, the Norse concept. We have a god of thunder, Thor, that at the apocalypse does battle with a great serpent from beneath a watery abyss at the pillars of the earth during the Ragnarok. This concept is identical to the thunderbirds battling the great horned serpents for the fate of the earth disk. So it's very widespread. 
It could be genetic memory. And yet, sometimes I'm tempted to think that we may be getting glimpses of a very, very ancient form of belief that was at one time common to um, the ancestors of all humanity. Well, you want to take it back to when it was just one plate and therefore all of us had the same language and everything, and then as the plates shifted, then differences because of climate and everything else took us in other directions. Um, I kind of every now and then play with the idea that, that, that there was a commonality originally, if you go back far enough in time, that was that was shaped by by the environment and and all sorts of other things over huge periods of time that that have created the differences um because there is there there are similar um creation stories if you if you go into the different tribes and then you you hit you know Europe and you hit Asia and you hit India and China um they they all have similar creation stories at the very core of course you know they weave different names and stuff like that but but basically creation stories stories of the flood you know there there are similarities all over the world throughout all of time so you know, you get to the point where you where you think, you know, are we coming back to a time where we are all beginning to blend into one again, or will the differences remain the same and keep us apart? Well, I think that that one way to to look at this phenomenon of co- comparative mythology is a fascinating subject, uh, and I think that though when we look at the cosmology that that we just went over with the three realms and the thunderers and and the serpents and the earth disk. Uh, I think that we're looking at a model, and within that model, numerous religions could exist no matter how similar or different they were. Uh, For example, if we look at the religions of the book, Christianity and Islam and Judaism are dramatically different. They have the same heroes. They use the same scriptures. Their temples are even very similar in some ways. Uh, However, the religion that exists within those trappings are very different. So the the cosmology of the mound builders could have been the host of many different types of religions. You know, and it's it's possible if we look at the religions of the world of of all throughout history. I think we would find a lot of similarities if we stripped them down to the bare model. And I think that 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 model, if we stripped them down to the model, in other words, how was the universe structured? Where do we find good and evil, things like that? If we strip them down to the bare model, that's where we'll find the great commonalities we're looking for. so, So there is truth to the folklore then? Do you refer you're referring to Native American folklore? Oh, just, I, I just love it. I'm just saying that you know the uh, uh, d- display at the um, <laughs> yes a mount museum uh, says you know just really marginalizes folklore, and you know, here we are talking about uh, well, that's uh, an attitude, Mark, that, and. You, I'm sure that you've felt this many times in in your own pursuit of truth 
everyone's experience is different. But one thing, uh, what you're seeing is the attitude of our age, where we've gotten to the point where we believe that because an institution gives us a permit to study a subject, that we can do away with all the traditions that came before us. You know, we come out of the universities convinced that all the wisdom of ages past was something to wink at, almost like a bad joke. And we're here to illuminate the picture. We're here to make things better. But when I look back on our ancestors, I have to ask if we are making things better. I have to ask, was it the right thing to do to throw away the ancestral past in favor of pure scientism? Because that's what's happening. Uh, There are... If anyone is interested in studying Native American cosmology and folklore, I highly recommend it because there is a wealth of fantastic knowledge to be found in it. Well, and and great wisdom, too. I mean, mean, when when the colonists came, when the pilgrims came, when when we invaded their land, um, we didn't in any way take into consideration that they might have uh, a spirituality that was far and above what we had, or we didn't even take the time to recognize that they had a spirituality, a connection to the earth, a connection to all of the um, the natural, um, the, the, the wind and everything. And we assumed <laughs> that they were barbarians instead of... Uh, you know, a highly cultured race of people. Well, you have to understand that Westerners are incapable of understanding paleo-spirituality. And there's a really good reason for that. Uh, the By the first millennium A.D., the Mother Church had concluded and demanded that the spiritual and the physical realms were not the same. It was the church that created the great divorce between religion and science when it decided to go with Plato's concept of what the supernatural must be. In other words, a supernatural entity or spirit must be an intangible cloud that seeks to influence or interact with us from another world, the so-called spiritual world. Now, by the time Europeans came into North America, this was the general perspective on religion. And when they arrived here, they encountered a people for whom the spiritual and physical worlds were one. It was impossible for them to understand the the religion, the traditions of the Indians, because these two people the Europeans and the Native Americans existed in two completely separate paradigms of reality. Well, that's uh, true. Go, Mark. Oh, I was just going to follow up, uh, you know, Barbara's comment about the, uh, you know, wisdom of the ancients and my uh, comment at the beginning of the show about the, you know, at least the Donkey finally made it uh, to Charleston with uh, you know, a package for Jason, but if um, he's had a chance to 
read um, uh, you know, on the, the the article, um, and there's a passage on page 145 about uh, these uh, uh, plant, magical plants were necessary for uh, communal health and cohesion, and that did work because it's pretty much uh, a cohesive culture for uh, four, five, six thousand years or longer. Uh, you know, we we aren't able to do that today. So uh, th- there was a lot of wisdom that kept people together for a very long time. Well, when we look at well, just in our book. Um, there, there's about 4,000 years of culture history mapped in our book. And during that 4,000 years, the cultures, they transformed, they changed their shape, but their ideology remained the same. Mm-hmm. Their cosmology remained the same. Uh, and that's, that's quite a feat um, until you consider that these people felt themselves to be joined together by a supernatural force. For example, uh, archaeologists talk about the exchange network and all of the exotic objects that found their way into Ohio at this time, just over 2,000 years ago, and they struggled to understand uh, what exactly it was that people in Ohio were exporting to get all this copper uh, and different types of prestigious objects sent to them in Ohio so that it could be buried with them in their elaborate tombs. And today there is zero agreement on what the social hierarchy was for the mound builders at that time. We know they didn't have chiefs because there were no chiefs in North America until around 1000 AD. Uh, We know that it wasn't just an exchange network either because all of these items were religiously charged. As they passed objects from the Great Lakes into Ohio, there was a religious power, a spiritual power in that object. So it wasn't simple economy as we understand it today. The religion, like you said, had somehow been ingrained in the very perceptions of the people who participated in it, and it stayed that way for generations. Okay. Quite a uh, fascinating response. And, wow, uh, we're we're already... yeah, I, I, can sorry. I hop in just a second, yeah, too, sure. because when when you consider how how integrated the people were with with their environment and how they were able to use their environment for healing and and all sorts of other things, and that that 
we di- we dis- dismissed it. And I mean, a, a terrific example is um, the SEACT that is absolutely used with cancer patients now, and and eases their pain and eases, and, and in, in many cases, actually even helps to cure the cancer, uh, depending on where it is and stuff like that. I mean, that SEACT was given to this nurse in, um, oh gosh, the 1940s, 1930s, and she had over 5,000 documented cures. She she was changing the dressing on, on, a, woman, on a native woman's um, a wound, and she saw a scar, and she said, what's that? And she said, oh, that's that's from where I had cancer. And she said, what do you mean, you had cancer? And she said, yeah, I, it was cured with this tea that the chief gave us. And and the tea is, I mean, it's, it's used to this day. Of course, the government doesn't want you to use it, but, I mean, they had cures for things that we're still looking for the cure for. That's right. And I'm really, really pleased that you brought this up. Um, this is a subject that's near and dear to my own heart. Uh, first of all, the societies that we're talking about, their healing, their knowledge of plants and their environment came from their shamans. Mm-hmm. And the Adena mound builders, their shamans, and the the ritual leaders also of the later Hopewell we now understand that in their smoking pipes, they were probably consuming a tobacco known as Nicotiana rustica. And Nicotiana rustica is the most powerful tobacco known. Uh, it contains nicotine concentrations exceeding 18%. Most cigarettes only have 1.2%. Uh, Nicotiana rustica is now known to produce experiences identical to those of known hallucinogens and psychoactive alkaloids, including ibogaine and harmaline. So at the point that we see the smoking pipes, which have tested positive for traces of nicotine, at the point that we see them introduced into the archaeological record, in this part of the country, it is precisely the same time that the most exotic artifacts representing this cosmology and the great earthworks of the Ohio River Valley were constructed. Um, By 200 B.C., they had added psychoactive mushrooms to their repertoire uh, because we have found a copper rod with a Hopewell shaman in southern Ohio with a mushroom effigy on the end of the rod that has been identified with one of the most potent hallucinogenic mushrooms in this part of the country. So altered states of consciousness were probably a major factor in what generated the mound-building tradition here in the Ohio River Valley. One of the things, though, that the academics may not be considering when it comes to the use of the psychoactive plants is the impact that it can have on community relations. If the people already had a cult of the dead 
which was thousands of years old, which meant that they had common divine ancestors. And then they started to share in the psychoactive tobacco in their pipe ceremonies at their gatherings. It could explain how hunter-gatherers assembled in such numbers to build an archaeological site like the Newark Earthworks, which covered over four square miles with precise alignments to the, to the moon's 18.6-year cycle. There was a great deal of cooperation at this time period, and almost all of it seems to have gone purely to the expression of the cosmos. Amazing. Uh, and they did all that without Obamacare. Oh, so they were hunter gatherers. That's and this is why I believe we have so much to learn from them. They were mm-hmm. an incredible people who accomplished remarkable things, but they did it without mechanics or the internet. And the general theory of anthropology that's been prevalent in the university circuits for a very long time, is that without a centralized power, such as a king or a dictator, people don't do great things. You can see this in the fact that even today, archaeologists and anthropologists around the world insist that ancient Sumeria was the world's first civilization. Well, let me ask you, do you find debt servitude, warfare, and Big Agra to represent civilization, because that's what ancient Sumeria was. Yeah, and, you know, we really don't find a whole lot of that here in the United States. No, because the Adena and Hopewell Mound Builders, for all intents and purposes, appear to have been largely heterarchical. Without having a hierarchy... They were still able to organize and and accomplish spectacular things. The Newark Mm -hmm. Earthworks, for example, and I'm no archaeoastronomer, but the actual professional archaeoastronomers insist that it's more accurate than Stonehenge. When the alignments of the Newark Earthworks were planned, uh, it happened hundreds of years before they were built, when the Hopewell archaeoastronomers found natural alignments among the naturally occurring hills surrounding Newark. When they found those alignments, they then constructed the earthworks inside of them in order to add to the cosmological significance of the site, and the entire process took many generations. So, clearly... uh, the people here were sophisticated in ways that I don't believe the public outreach is really doing justice. Well, you know, hopefully we'll be able to have a <clears throat> ed- editor on in the spring who will uh, be able to talk about one of the uh, contributions for an upcoming two-part series, um, and one of the chapters covers uh, archaeoastronomy, and 
you know, this author has written about, like the, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Hobley has written about uh, the uh, earthworks are so precise. You know, there is only like a, you know, like an eighth of an inch off on some of the the embankment. Like you, uh, people can't even do that today with. You know, yeah. GPSs and lasers. Are you having him on your show? Well, ho- hopefully Jared <clears throat> will be on to discuss uh, this book. I, I, I'd like uh, – I'll, I'll ask him if he – Hively and Horan are the people who discovered yeah. these alignments at Newark, and they are profound alignments. Uh, yeah. The Newark Earthworks, located in Licking County, Ohio, a massive Hopewell Earthworks complex – with so many precise lunar alignments that Hively and Horn, the archaeoastronomers who discovered it, concluded that the people were seeking to understand or harness the force represented by the moon. And this is something we see replicated in several major earthwork sites in Ohio, including High Bank and the Hopeton earthworks. Uh, so there's something special about the moon to these ancient mound builders. Oh, it, I'll, 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 I'll uh, work on developing that that one as we get closer to the uh, two volume set that's coming out. I, I, I would like to uh, pr- promote. Their their research, but it, it's it, like you know the distances you're talking about are vast distances. You even get uh, uh, was it like Sugarloaf Mountain to the Adena Mansion? Like we're talking like miles, and all this stuff is uh, all all lining up precisely. Uh, you know, you mentioned those huge. Um, earthworks in Charleston, like the nine sacred circles, like the, the diameters of those were like what, a thousand feet. Well, there the Adena sacred circles are usually around two hundred feet in diameter. Uh, mm-hmm. What we now know is that the Adena and Hopewell both used the same measurement unit when they constructed their earthworks. Uh, it's a unit of 1,054 feet, and Hively and Horn discovered that by measuring the observatory circle uh, at the Newark Earthworks. Uh, and what's interesting is that uh, Hopewell people seem to have preferred to use the measurement unit in its entirety in multiples, whereas the Adena would divide the unit and then use some division of it in the diameters of their earthworks. This is all very complicated business, and um, I would encourage anyone interested in uh, checking out some of the alignments of these earthwork sites to pick up something by Hively and Horn or Will Romain, who's done some excellent publications on the astronomical alignments of the Adena and Hopewell temples. 
these people were experts at tracking the sun and the moon. And in some cases, uh, they spent generations tracking the moon around a certain vicinity just to build earthworks, which aligned to important positions that it would follow during its cycle. Um, Archaeology of the Sacred is one of the... the, the books uh, you and I would highly recommend by uh, William Romaine. Yes. I, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, anyone who's interested in uh, studying the cultures that we're talking about today, uh, you do yourself a favor and um, pick up something by Christopher Carr or Will Romaine, and uh, you'll you'll learn a lot. And... <clears throat> Bill has uh, he's chapter eight, ancient sky watchers of the eastern woodlands. In the new book, archaeology and ancient religion in the American Midcontinent, and hopefully we'll have some uh, some of the authors from that book coming up soon while well, we're working on that but uh there's another one of uh, Bill's titles um but uh, you know we've uh gone through almost 3 quarters of uh the the show which I I just can't believe how much uh time passed by so quickly uh um but you know did did uh is Sarah still working on photoshopping the uh, pink speedo uh, photo? You know, I'm not sure. That's one of her black ops projects that I I have no. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. I'm I'm maintaining my innocence by keeping my hands clean of this project of yours. So. Uh, 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 okay. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'm sure I'm going to hear about that. Well, like uh, I said, uh, everyone, things happen when Mark Eddy comes around, so. We've been talking a lot about you know, these major river valleys. Uh, you, know, you, you also uh, delve into um, some of these... Uh, uh, like mound clusters that are uh, more located along uh, uh, you know, tri- tributaries, uh, you know, like the Dodderidge County uh, mound cluster mm. uh, that had a giant and... Uh, uh, well, that's an interesting Ernest story. Sutton's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah, these uh, uh, it, it, the the position is uh, uh, unusual for these uh, mounds. Can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the, those uh, that cluster? Well, the mounds are um, the Doddridge County mounds probably began as very early Adena mounds, and then were used over time. Um, and um, there, the the position in the landscape is we see a lot of the very early Adena mounds that'll be in either a single mound or a small group, 
and then later uh, there were later burials added to those mounds. But I think that the thing about the Doddridge County Mound Group, um, also known as the uh, as the Ernest Sutton Mounds, among those of us that know what was found there. Uh, is that the excavator, Ernest Sutton, who was a local professor, he actually found very large skeletal remains in the mounds more than once in the same mound group. He found a large skeleton uh, in the, the late 20s, I believe, and it was taken by one of his assistants. Uh, the assistant took it home with him and kept the skeleton. And later, the Smithsonian sent agents to interview Ernest Sutton to find out what had happened to the gigantic skeletons that Sutton had told the media he found in the mound. And Sutton explained to the Smithsonian agents that he didn't have the bones, and he did not know where the bones were. But I've seen a, a letter in which uh, a discussion was taking place between Sutton and the assistant who took the bones, which made it very clear that at the time the Smithsonian was asking questions, the, the bones were still on hand somewhere, but they were later stolen. The second instance was in 1960. The same mound was excavated and... Again, an assistant stole a large skeleton from the mound, and uh, we did an investigation on this story, and we learned from people who lived in the area that when the person who had stolen the second giant found in the mound died, the skeleton was purchased uh, on the black market. So there's actually money, monetary gain in, in unusual remains today, which really shouldn't surprise us, considering how many people are filming themselves holding Paracas skulls today and getting a good amount of attention for it. But that there's a long history of those Doddridge County mounds and some of the, the fantastic discoveries made there. And... I just wanted to say that Ernest Sutton himself was one of the pioneers in the archaeology of this region, and he's never really been recognized as such because he wasn't from the same old good old boys club as the establishment. But we are planning the publication of a book that is going to talk about Ernest Sutton's life and his contributions to archaeology in this part of the country to try to set the record straight. Cool. Uh, do you have an idea when that might be available? It's among the projects that we plan to have finished in, in 2019. So that's uh, it's something that we've actually been working on for several years and working with his family on uh, to set the record straight on his contributions because Sutton was overshadowed by state-sponsored institutions like the Ohio Historical Society, and we we just feel that his work needs to be properly presented, and and some of the extraordinary things he found need to be discussed uh, in some depth. 
you can read a lot about Ernest Sutton in an article that we published online called The Giants of Doddridge County. You don't want to miss that one if you found any of the things we talked about today interesting. Okay, and, uh, you know, we're just just under a half hour left, and uh, I don't think we've mentioned your uh, website yet. Do you want to give that a plug? Sure. The website is paradigmcollision.com. And we have a lot of free articles and different things like that that you can check out on the website. And the title of our book is Ages of the Giants, and you can find that on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. Okay. And you are going to have another really uh, captivating article coming out next month in Ancient American Magazine and you you get into these um, the magicians and their assistants and that's another pattern that we fought you bring up like four examples found in across the Ohio River Valley, and it just kind of fits into a lot of these other patterns, uh, we uh, cultural patterns that we've a- a- examined tonight. So uh, uh, let's you know, g- give everyone a little preview of what to expect in your soon-to-be-published article. Well, sure. Um, one of the people whose work has had the biggest impact on me just as a a thinker when I consider what I'm looking at uh, with an archaeological site is Christopher Carr. Um, His books on the Hopewell go into great detail of of the ways that we can use our knowledge uh, to interpret the burials we see in the mounds. And there's actually a recurring type of burial in Adena Mounds which span the entire length of the culture uh, from 500 B.C. to 300 A.D., there's a recurring pattern of shaman burials who have females buried in the same tombs with them but with no artifacts. And I don't think that the repetition of, of this type of burial has ever really been pointed out. Uh, I think that you know, there are many types of burials in the mounds. There are thousands of burials on record from the mounds, and so a lot of things inevitably slip through the cracks. But we found that this was a recurring pattern in several Adena mounds in the Ohio Valley. And we offer, in the new article, we'll be offering our interpretation of, of who that female may have been and why she was significant, why was this female burial placed in the the tomb of a shaman. And uh, it takes us to some pretty interesting places. Uh, In particular, we talk about the roles that oracles or mediums could have played in the Adena culture. Because we know that the Adena people 
in some instances, curated the remains of their ancestors for an unknown length of time, and then eventually someone would die who would be buried with the skull of someone who could have been a great-great-grandfather. So the cult being so focused on ancestral connections and ties, uh, we believe that this type of interpretation could be valid in this instance. Uh, but can the I most... offer you? Can I offer you a suggestion too? Yeah. When it when it comes to the oracles of Delphi, um, who were mediums, sort of, they sat over the vapors and they be they went into a trance of some sort and they would they would be given questions and they would babble whatever came to them or through them, often it was nonsensical, and it took a priest or magician to interpret it for the person who had asked the question. Mm -hmm. Could that same sort of uh, pairing be appropriate for what you're talking about? Well, you must be reading my mind, because that's exactly where the article goes. Um, In fact, there's... There's a lot of information in here about the oracle at Delphi uh, because, in essence, what the oracle was is a shamanic tra- uh, practitioner who was in an institutionalized mm-hmm. setting. Yep. You know, they put a person in an altered state of consciousness uh, in a way that was very ancient and very primitive, and then they used the the things that that person said or that they did to make important decisions that affected the entire ancient world Uh, so in that instance you could say that ancient greece never could shake off its shamanic heritage Um, (laughs) you know for all of their democracy and their love of reason at the end of the day it took a shamanic person to give them anything they're willing to listen to but yeah and and they had to put them into a trance so that they they didn't even know what they were saying but and that's a that's a theory that the the gas uh, there was a gas an intoxicating gas that rose up through the crevice that that oracle uh-huh. was seated over, and whoever controlled what what she said controlled the fate of the entire Greek world because as we know now entire empires rose and fell based on the utterances uh, of the Pythia. Yeah. And. The, the the possibility exists considering the widespread use of hallucinogenic tobacco and probably other plants among the cultures we're studying that this person may have been ritually exposed to a, a consciousness-altering substance and then used as an oracle medium. Yeah, and I could see why if if the magician passed away that they would also bury with him the person that worked with him was paired with him well and the the fact is we know that many of the adena tombs were left open for an unknown period of time and people may have been grouped into those tombs uh, as time passed so we don't necessarily have to have an instance of human sacrifice here either. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the, the probability is the, if the shamans had female assistants who served as oracle mediums, that person would have been considered very potent with power, 
and burial of that person with a shaman may have been a form seen as a form of soul release. Uh, not to mention the connection that that person would have been perceived as having with the shaman if they both experienced other than human entities or altered states together. Yeah, I could I could see that. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, and J- Jason, just to uh, keep you know, the audience intrigued by this information. And uh, like the Dover Mound uh, book, as well as uh, was it uh, uh, Doctor Webb's Adina People Number Two? There is you know, a good, good bit of information about these, like uh, wolf. Uh, Jaws that were put in the magician's mouth, and like some of the costumes. Uh, sure, the, sure. It, yeah, uh, that, uh, that, yeah, that's some really neat stuff too that you bring up as well. Well, the Adina shamans are like my favorite band. I've studied them uh, <laughs> every shred of material on them that I possibly can because I believe that the leaders of these societies must have been incredible people. Uh, the Adina shamans. Wore animal masks made from the actual skulls or jaws of the wildcat, the wolf, and the bear. And in some cases, they wore costumes which reflected other elements of those animals. There's the panther man shaman from the Dover Mound who was buried with one of the female magician's assistants wore a leather costume with crescent-shaped mica stripes as well as the jaws of a puma over his face. This individual probably assumed the state or the being of a spirit animal while smoking the Nicotiana rustica tobacco, and it was the merger of the man and the animal which made it possible to journey between the different realms in the ancient cosmos that we discussed earlier. So the Adena shamans um, seem to have been focused primarily on emulating those three animals, the, the wolf, the wildcat, and the bear, although there are some very interesting findings from different mounds uh, that could indicate that there were mythic creatures that they sometimes impersonated also. I have an entire chapter in my next book about that, some of the mythic beasts that the Adena shamans may have been imitating, but which people just didn't recognize the costumery for what it was at the time of the excavation. So these were the people who in altered states, would have traveled along the Axis Mundi uniting worlds and brought back knowledge to be used for their community's benefit uh, upon returning to our realm. Okay. And Jason, to go back to one of the uh, original themes of, you know, the show is, you know, the display at the 
you know, Delft Narona Museum, or you know, they talk about you know pseudo archaeology, and it just uh, just kind of focuses on you know just one artifact, and it's kind of taken out of context when they develop this theory over. Well, you know, you know, I think probably all the examples we've given are just uh, aren't one based on one artifact. You know, we're, we've looked at you know these patterns, what uh, many uh, like museum curators have uncovered, like. 50, 60 uh, years ago, well, uh, then we get into the 1880s with, uh, you know, Colonel Norris, uh, but this was all long before uh, Eric von Daniken. So that, well, you know, this, you know, we aren't, you know, I, I, I don't think we've really fallen into the pattern that's you know, uh, the, the display case is suggesting that you know what what we're doing tonight is you know that we're part of the problem well uh the the fact of the matter is this uh, as we documented in our book uh, the the tall ones the the giants their remains have been reported from the glacial came culture that dates to between 1400 B.C. and 700 B.C. Then we find them reported in the mounds of the Adena and Hopewell, which together span 1000 B.C. to 500 A.D. Then we find there are just as many gigantic skeletons in the mounds of the Mississippian culture, which persisted until around 1600 A.D., after European contact, and in fact, several large skeletons between seven and eight feet tall that were unearthed by the Smithsonian and archaeologists in recent times were found with Spanish trade artifacts. We now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only did the tall ones persist throughout all of North American prehistory, but that they were still living and still being buried in mounds after European contact to within just a few hundred years ago. And if we're going to deny the existence of people with this anthropology, we're doing something very foolish. Because at the end of the day, uh, not only are they real, but they're also very human and they're Native American people. Excellent point. Okay. Um, when when do you think your part two is going to be out? You know, you know, you know the uh, Ernest Sutton book coming out uh, next next year. What, what what can we anticipate uh, for, in, from you and Sarah in in the upcoming year? Up to now, our goal with our publications has been to show people the archaeological evidence. And I think we've done that. I think we've done a fairly good job of that. 
Now mm-hmm. we're going to interpret the evidence with the next phase, and beginning with the articles that we have about to, about to be published at the present, uh, and continuing into 2019, we will publish uh, the sequel to Ages of the Giants, and we will also be publishing uh, a detailed description of Ernest Sutton's archaeological explorations in the Ohio Valley. Those two projects are both planned for 2019. But you know what they say about plans. Um, but that's what uh, what we have on the agenda. The follow-up to our first book is going to try to answer three major questions about the ancient giants that as far as I know, have never been satisfactory answered. Um, among those questions are, uh, where did they come from? What is their genesis? Why were they uh, gifted the way they were with a unique anthropology? Uh, the other question is, who are their living descendants? And then finally, uh, we're going to discuss at least one instance where we have found hard evidence uh, that one of the uh, Native American stories of a battle between a tribe and a group of giants that we've all heard so many times, we have found that at least one of these stories can now be backed up with hard evidence. And we even have uh, a date for when the encounter probably happened, and we've identified what we believe are the languages spoken by both sides. So these are the types of things that we'll be addressing uh, in the book that's coming out next year. Wow. Okay, so we're going to have a uh, busy year and hopefully uh, get you on more radio shows and hear more of your information and uh, you know we've covered so, so many um, topics tonight and I I'm, I'm I think the audience really should be you know, just overwhelmed with what the 5,000 years of history you uh, masterfully uh, covered and you know, as we approach you know, like nine minutes left in the uh, show, you know, you know, I think one of the uh, fascinating aspects of Ages of the Giants and you know, what, what should be apparent from so many of these discussions or, uh, or the topics tonight is. Uh, the, the role of the interconnected river valleys play in the ancient people's lives, and you know, information is going up and down the rivers all the time. Uh, you know, one of the uh, interesting mounds that you analyze is the North Benton Mound, and then you know, further north in Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, northeast of uh, Ohio's North Benton, Benton Mound, you have like the Squawky Hill culture. Maybe, maybe do like a quick. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, you know, 
synopsis of those uh, uh, cultures, and then you know, we'll probably uh, be cut off by the English robo babe. Okay, no, by well, me probably. <laughs> the the uh, we've we've talked about the Adena and Hopewell cultures in the Ohio Valley tonight, but the fact is uh, these cultures spread all around the country. And by Hopewell times, the the mound builder tradition that we're discussing today uh, had spread to the Florida coast in the south, and, and it was in southern Ontario and all along the Atlantic coast, and their exchange network re- reached as far as the Rocky Mountain Range where they were acquiring their obsidian. And the river valleys were the natural highways. It's It's a remarkable thing. Uh, when we consider today that our natural instinct is to build bridges over rivers, and it seems that the ancients were trying to let the rivers lead them to places. Uh, and uh, they they established a remarkable exchange network. It's truly incredible. It had probably been in place since archaic times, more than 3,000 years ago, because we know that the shell mound people that are six or 7,000 years old were importing copper from the Great Lakes. Um, so the, the river valleys were, were sort of the glue that held their society together. Uh, and the way these cultures spread, though, I don't believe it was simple trade. Uh, many archaeologists today will look at a culture in Vermont which is the material culture, the pipes, the points, um, all these different elements that we find in the graves will be identical to what we see in Ohio in an Adena burial mound, and they'll say that those pipes were just traded, that that, those material goods were just traded, and somehow the religion accompanied the object. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think these people were united in in lasting interconnected ways that we just haven't found anything in the in the terminology that really accounts for it you know we're supposed to think of primitive humans as isolated cave dwellers who can barely do anything for themselves but it it seems that again north america stands out as a place where remarkable things happen among people without a hierarchy and without city building or any of the things we deem necessary to human economy. Okay. Well, <clears throat> you know, we're down to about five minutes. Um, I think you and Sarah need to come up and, and get, give you a tour of, like, uh, you know, where the Half Moon Mound Cluster stood, and it's kind of across the river from Dave Hunt's house. But I did, Dave will appreciate that I acknowledged him. He's a big supporter of the show. Um, but, it, you know, you need to come up and see some of the stuff, and it's, hopefully we can get together soon. And since the leaves are off the trees, you can see more. So hopefully we can well, do, do something like that. Yeah, that that would be fun. I'd also like to inform the Grave Creek Mound Museum that in order that in order for a uh, tax-funded, state-funded 
public outreach to put up an exhibit that attacks a viewpoint held by some American citizens is probably illegal. Um, but, you know, that's one reason why people who are interested in doing this type of research need to understand their rights and the legalities that are supposed to be applied to anything that's tax-funded or state-funded. You know, state-funded institutions uh, have no right to bar anyone uh, from having access to anything in their collection who happens to be an American citizen, and they certainly should not be uh, setting up displays that only exist to attack certain viewpoints. That doesn't make me feel very comfortable when I think about that happening in the United States of America. Yeah, was, uh, go, yeah. I, I just encourage people go, go, go tour the museum. Go, go see it. It's, it's unfortunate that uh, that that's going up, but uh, go, uh, go, go in for a visit. Buy, buy a T-shirt. Uh, it's just, you know. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I I, I was. I thought it was poor, done in poor taste. And I guess you know, uh, um, maybe they um, uh, don't aren't aren't going to step on my uh, First Amendment uh, rights about saying that, but um, you know. I, I I I just really did, didn't appreciate uh, seeing what they did with uh, my tax dollars and kind of um, you know, m- making what we do for the magazine and you know, uh, other publications. You know, it's making us look uh, ridiculous. Uh, they're they're doing the same thing to themselves. Yes, well, you just have to always remember, and this is advice for anyone out there, you can't stop uh, people from doing bad things. The most important thing in the universe, though, is, is what you do yourself. You know, at, at the end of the day, the best that we can hope to do is try to balance ignorance with knowledge, to, to balance the darkness by bringing some light and um, you can only do what it's within your spirit to do. However, it may be time uh, in our country's history for some type of major, for a legal challenge to be brought against the hoarding of prehistoric artifacts and information that we see happening uh, with tax, tax-funded tax institutions, which then want to limit who can have access to to their acquisitions or whose viewpoint is welcome uh, in Mm -hmm. their centers. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about taxation without representation. Excellent point. Well, Well, I got to tell you, you you came up at the very, very end with some very good advice and some wise thoughts. We are down to the last 10 or 15 seconds. So, we have to say good night, but Jason, this has been a, an amazing show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> it's time yeah, uh, Mark, t- to say good night. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 Sarah, keep keep working on uh, that that billboard. Uh, we're all lo- looking forward to seeing it on our uh, journey into Dunbar. 
Thanks, Jason, and thanks, Barbara. Uh, And we, Barbara, will be having David Brody on Sunday night. Don't want to miss that one either. Sunday night, nine o'clock. Right. (laughs) Good night, guys. Good night. Thanks, everyone.